let's start. Um, I want to say before we start, because um, along the lines of what I was saying a second ago, it's, it's really funny. I must be losing it more and more because I've said to you guys several times now um, that I've been really grateful to go back over these works. I can't remember where I've said it with you guys, but I've done it a number of times. When I was surprised, because I know these works pretty well, and every once in a while something will happen with a work, and I can't remember what the last work was that had that effect on me, but, and Jane Austen has. But I am, I can't express the depth of gratitude for you guys um, for being as outrageously foolish you, as you are sometimes, that all of you would have assented to, you know, because I said this um, about my friend. I cannot tell you how glad I am to return to this book, because I have not looked at this book in 30 years, 25 years. Um, and I think I've told you before, I hope I get, I mean, I hope I get to heaven to see Christ and God. But if I do get there, I want to, and, and I'm assuming Jane Austen will be there, I hope not wrongly, but because I want to thank her for giving me my eyes, because that's the way I look at her. That as an undergraduate at Berkeley, the, the books that took me over were Great Expectations, um, Portrait of an Artist, it's just a, so completely different um, because of what Joyce does with it. Um, Scarlet Letter and Pride and Prejudice. And Pride and Prejudice stood out in some ways from the others. Dickens' language just took me. The beginning of, of Great Expectations to me is, it's memorable. And Jane Austen, her language, I, and the only word that I know of to use to describe her language is light. I mean, you, you know, I, I was trying to tell my grandson a couple of days ago, because he was talking about beauty and um, moderation. He's in high school and he had this theme. And I was trying to explain that one of the effects of beauty is light. It's what St. Thomas calls claritas. Um, integritas, um, it's wholeness, integrity, and claritas, light. When we don't look at a picture and think light, <laughs> but that's exactly the word that should come because if you if you think that there was nothing there before, you know, we're just and you're reading Jane Austen and suddenly light is coming into your mind. You're seeing things if you can put it that way. I'm really I'm I'm being really literal right now. That light comes in your mind, and her language is more than ordinarily luminous. What she does with language is just stunning to me. She, she brings into focus, she helps us to see things, she brings a light to some things that's extraordinary. And she does it um, largely with a language that's understated. Jane Austen, she, she, I'm going to use the word here, I'll, I'll point to it when, when we get started in the class. She uses the word stupid to describe somebody. That, that's absolutely unlike her. She will not overstate. She understates everything. She'll say, it's not unworthy, instead of saying, um, it's worthy, she'll say it's not unworthy. You know, she'll understate like that all the time. She'll use double negatives. Um, and that to me is a reflection of a kind of charity, a, a, a restraint in herself in the way that she looks at things. It's understated. Mark Twain would rarely understate. 
Dickens would rarely, you know, most men would rarely understate. She understates all the time. And I was taken by her language and the spirit of it right away. And my description of her coming out of my first experience of her was that she gave me my domestic eyes. She was the first one who helped me see the good that's possible in a family. And in a, in a world in which the family is suffering terribly. So I'm grateful, glad to do this, and, and, um, and I'll get back to my, um, um, my opening comments where I, I want to lay some things out that I don't think you probably hear from other teachers on Jane Austen, but I want to put them out. Anyway, I'm grateful to be, I'm looking forward to doing this with you guys, so it'll be interesting to see what you say. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How good you are, <laughs> how often you come out of nowhere, just like you, that we get these lights um, um, that can have such an effect on us, um, remind us of how present you always are and how often we don't see you. The well, purpose of our work is to make an effort to see if we can't be more aware of how present you are to us. You're never not here. So the fact that we don't see you isn't your fault, it's ours. We think we see, we think we hear, and so often we don't. So speaking for myself, and I hope for everybody here, it's a pleasure to do this work. How grateful we are for all the many ways in which these people we're reading revealed you or some part of you to us. I ask a special blessing, and his name is Matt. Matt. Yeah. I ask a special blessing on um, Anne's, did you say great nephew? Mm -hmm. Great nephew, Matt. <sighs> We're in a world that's unlike any other world we've lived in before. There was a compatibility between the church, our church, and the natural world because we believed that nature was good. So was our church. So when we walked out of Mass, we walked into a world that was in so many ways congruent, compatible with our own. That's not true anymore. We walk into what Eliot calls the unreal city, or Baudelaire calls the Fumilante, the city of swarms, of ghosts and shades, um, frightening. And our kids are subjected to it. Um, um, it a special strength is asked of parents today because they don't have the help from nature that we once had. Um, unnatural things are going on. People don't look to nature for help anymore. They want to change it, change our sex, change the world, make the world over. Jews want to do it with a calf. We want to do it with the whole world and with sciences. So it's an awful world. I ask for a strength for all of us um, to take courage, um, to have faith when there's no reason for having it. That's the nature of faith. Um, I had a meeting with Father Flynn. All of you would appreciate this. He, he said one of his pet peeves has become that so many people say, um, God gives me just enough um, for me to deal with. Father got up in his hinds on that one. <laughs> he said it's become a pet peeve. 
He said, that's not true. It's just not true. He always gives us more than we can deal with so we can turn to him. And I believe him. That's a hardship in a world in which so much that goes on wants to make us comfortable and satisfied. So when we meet difficulties that ask more of us, we're not always prepared for them, sadly. So help us, please. Strengthen us in our helplessness to turn to you, to be grateful sometimes for hardships because they make us aware. They help us to do things that otherwise we might not do um, in our marriages, in our families. So watch over that young man, Matt. Receive him into your kingdom. Forgive his sins, please. Um, any of the sins of those who love him, um, who will feel his loss, and maybe their part in it, I don't know. But be with him, surround him with um, your mercy, um, receive him into your kingdom, the purgatory that leads to it, and finally your kingdom itself. Um, and be with all of his loved ones. I ask a special prayer tonight for Anne. Let her heart quiet somewhere. Take a strength in occasions like this. Help us to be stronger by being a part of them. We share these things. Anne's not going to carry this alone. So um, strengthen all of us and see that there is a terrible, helpful, painful mercy in events like this. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, here, I want to start. Before, before we do the, you know, the... the the um, the uh, poem. I want to make a bald statement here because I've been so taken over. The tonight is dedicated. You've never heard me say this about men. I don't think you, for the last year you've been hearing me call men scoundrels for the most part. You know, after we did Shakespeare and Chaucer together, it was stunning to see. There's a great nobility to men. Men and women have lost their place in our world, both men and women. I think I, I can say that. You may disagree, but I'm going to say it. Men and women, both. It's a struggle to be a man today. It's a struggle to be a woman. Um, but I want to I want to dedicate this course, to, I mean this class tonight, and for the next I don't know month or two of meetings, to the glory of women, to the glory of women. And I'm going to ask that, knowing I'm putting myself in danger, because some of you are going to get big-headed about this. Um, but here, um, when I came out of Jane Austen this time, the one thing that I could say about her is that it, it's one of the um, greatest affirmations of woman that I've ever read. It is absolutely not feminist. Some of you may want to quarrel with me on that. She is not feminist. Lots of feminists will read. I'm going to make an argument for this because this is not a small matter for me, as you can imagine. Lots of feminists, lots of women critics will approach this looking at Jane Austen as a proto-feminist. She's not. And I'll make clear in a minute why she's not. This is one of the greatest tributes to womanhood that I can... And by the way, I would have never said this 25 years ago, ever. But the context in which we live has brought that out of me and my going back to her under these circumstances. So I just want to say that boldly. That, um, this is a, one of the greatest affirmations of the, of the peculiar gifts to woman that I've ever read. 
And the interest for me is, you know, I wasn't going to plan to do this. I was not going to plan to do this. And you know that after we do Jane Austen, we're going to do Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, Catherine Ann Porter, all women. We're going to do the short stories. Their presentation of women is not going to be as kind as Jane Austen's. And you know that Jane Austen's not kind. If you look at 90% of the women in this book, they're all satirized. They're, the pictures of them are not very flattering. We're seeing the worst of women. And I'm going to put this up front right now. The, the, the most wonderful character, at least in my opinion, in the book is Elizabeth. And there is nobody, nobody more deceived than she is. Through the whole first, I'm, we're going to come to this in a minute, through the whole first two-thirds of the book, everything's presented largely through Elizabeth's eyes. She is very, very bright. She's sensitive. Her judgments are sound. And um, we learn two-thirds of the way through the book, all of her judgments are wrong. She'll get to that point where she said, I thought I knew myself. She prided herself on her judgments, and they're all wrong. So in one way, her faults are graver than everybody else's because she has so many more gifts. So if we don't see that, we're not seeing Jane Austen. She's laying bare the worst parts of women. Most of them won't, do not want to see their faults, do not want to admit them. Jane doesn't. I mean, sorry, Elizabeth doesn't. And yet, two-thirds of the way through the book, she says, I thought I knew myself. She's so humiliated because she took pride in her judgments and what she did, and she comes to a point of realizing she was all wrong. So, part, part of what I want to say here is, um, go back to Lear, because we've done Shakespeare's comedies. The importance of self, moments of self-revelation for Shakespeare. You know they run through the, you know that that's an aspect of tragedy, right? The anagnorisis, the peripatia. Anagnorisis, recognition. That that's crucial to the turn, the peripatia. Jane Austen's novels are all built on the peripatia, turns, moments of self-revelation. She's got Shakespeare everywhere in her. She's just taken her, her view and narrowed it on domestic life. But at the center of it are these moments of self-knowledge, self exactly like Lear's. Not as painful, because there's a metaphysical dimension to Shakespeare that Austen lacks, but still they're important for us to see. Okay? Um, she's an incredible person, but whoever she has in her to be will not come to fruition until she learns to see how flawed she is exactly like Lear, or all Shakespeare's, okay? Is that clear? So she shows us the whole range of women. She makes clear, it's going to be one of my major questions, and why does she do that? I'll come back to it, but that's going to be a major question for you. So what I want to say here at the outset is this is a wonderful affirmation of womanhood. Um, and to and to give this a, unusual support, I'm going to do something you know that I ordinarily avoid doing. But I'm going to go to the church on this one. This is from John Paul II in um, a piece that he wrote in which he celebrates um, womanhood. By the way, this is taken from a book that a, a friend of ours has the first essay in it, and she gave it to Suzanne. Suzanne's been reading it. Um, I'm going to I'm going to read it 
ordinarily I don't do this, but I, I really want to read this book. It's a collection of women it's, um, who are all committed to growing in the intellectual life. It's called With All Her Mind. And I would recommend all of you get it, most especially the men. Whether you want to read Jane Austen or not. Um, here's, here's John Paul. He lived most of his life, and towards the end of this life, he had this realization, he came to it, and the nature of the realization was this genius of women that he'd not seen. And it took him over. So I want to put together, you should have gotten it in the letter I wrote to you last night. I want to put together these two statements because um, they're really, uh-oh, they're really dark. Uh-oh. Doug, do you have that sheet that gives the quote from von Balthasar? Do you, can I? This is from John Paul, okay? It's in a piece called Christifides Laesi. In Christifides Laesi, written by John Paul on the vocation of... The laid are reminded of the universal call to holiness. John Paul pays particular attention to women in this apostolic exhortation and asks all to acknowledge the indispensable contribution of women to building up the church and the development of society. He exhorts women to take up leadership roles, saying, If anyone has this task of advancing the dignity of women in the church and society, it is women themselves who must recognize their responsibility as leading characters. Women's participation in the intellectual life is critical for the future of the church. Without the impact of the feminine genius in all sectors of society, the church and the world would be deprived of the unique and unrepeatable gifts that are given to each woman due to her capacity to bear human life within her. Go down, if this is me going down a few lines. But this great gift of femininity is often overlooked, if not discarded. Um, even John Paul said in his meditation on givenness that a long road led me to discover the genius of women and providence itself saw to it that the time eventually came when I really recognized it and was even, as it were, dazzled by it. Okay. Um, Oh, I've got it, Doc. Sorry, I've got it. I've got it. Sorry. I want to put that quote from John Paul next to a couple of statements that von Balthasar said um, some years ago. Um, it's from a book called Elucidations, The Marian Principle. So von Balthasar um, is speaking to the importance of Mary for our world. A couple of, here's um, two quotes. Where the mystery of the Marian character of the church is obscured or abandoned, how much of the Protestant world is Mary? I mean, their, their tendency to look at the Catholic church is to see it as a form of Mariolatry. The Catholics um, idolatrize Mary. Just in time. Um, the tendency of Protestants to see that Catholics are mistaken on this um, and giving her an excessive importance. Von Balthasar is saying, wherever that importance is obscured or undermined, the church suffers. If that isn't clear to everybody, don't ever forget, she is the mother of God. One of the early heresies in the church was to um, assert that Mary was the mother of Christ, 
a man, but not God. I think it was the Nestorian heresy. Think about that. They would not allow the divinity. I mean, a woman can give birth to a man, a woman, but not God. So that was one of the early church heresies, that, like so many heresies the church has had to face. Always, By the way, they don't stop. They're always here. Um, where the mystery of the Marian character of the church is obscured or abandoned, their Christianity must become unisexual, homosexual, one sex. That is to say, all male. And I hope everybody sees the danger of that. And we've just gone through an awful period where the sin of pedophile was rife. Homosexual was a serious hurting, wounding of our church. How much of that, I'm going to ask, and it's a rhetorical question because I don't want to go into it, but how much of that was due to the church becoming, losing its sense of Mary under a Protestant influence in the Western world? Here's another quote that in my mind says even more. This is from von Balthasar again. The church since the council has to a large extent put off her mystical characteristics. Underline this please. She's become a church of permanent conversations, organizations, advisory commissions, congresses, synods, commissions, academies, um, parties, pressure groups, functions, structure, structures and restructures, sociological experiments, statistics. That, and I, it, I, I've got a peeve of my own here. So much of the communication that goes on in the church today is through email, what do you call it, programs, where they handle the ministries through these assignments, and you get these assignments. If you try to make contact and talk with a person, you're talking to a machine. These are ministries in the church. Okay, I'm going to get angry, and so I'm going to catch myself here for a minute. God, that, the whole personal aspect, that, that is, the condition that um, um, people who take ministry seriously are put under these conditions are transferred to media on the ground that there's too much for us to do. And this is efficient. But the cost of it is impersonality. They're not bearing as much and because they've got lives. So what they do is use these ministries, these, oh my, e these email media services, to run them all so that something be is becoming mechanized. So in this list that I'm giving you, sorry, that's, that's a person, when I read this, I was just included it. So remember what he's saying. Um, to the extent that our church puts off its mystical qualities, um, she gets taken over by permanent conversations, organizations, advisory commissions, congresses, synods, commissions, um, academies, parties, pressure groups, functions, structures, restructures, sociological experiences, statistics. That is, say, more than ever a male church. And I want to underscore that. That means the church gets run by a cognitive and intellect. I hope everybody's aware of, of something in me, even if I'm not doing a good job of it right now, that I, I think I can say of myself that I think nobody in this room is more committed to the intellect than I am, that has been behind everything I do. I value reason that much, or I wouldn't be doing this course. But I also know that one of the dangers of the male, reason, or the male person is to get caught in structures, because men tend to work in structures. 
Women are more fluid. My contention, some of you are going to maybe be upset here, is both of those have serious faults in it. Women become too fluid, men become too structured. But we have something to offer each other and it, it will not be realized if we don't come together. And I said a couple of weeks ago that at the heart of our church is marriages. And John Paul said in that letter I wrote you, um, Joseph was told, take her to you. You know, how many men are taking that seriously today as part of what it means to be a man? And how many women are receiving that as, a, as part of what it means to be a woman? So he says, you know, that once we lose that mystical aspect, the church becomes a f the fruit of the, the cognitive things in man. And it's a question in my mind how much women today are giving into that by the by the very nature of technology and all that technology does for it. Um, that is to say, more than ever, a male church. If perhaps one should not say a sexless entity in which woman may gain for herself a place to the extent that she's ready herself to become such an entity. That, that last line even floors me a little bit. You know, as if woman has to do something to prove herself in order to, you know, women should be stepping forward. Women should be embracing the intellectual life. Lots of women are not going to read St. Thomas, sadly. Sadly. And lots of women, I think, are going to misuse their intellectual gifts, just like men. But the call here is there's a special place for a woman in the church. And that needs to be encouraged today. So with that as an intro, let me go to um, our work. On Jane Austen. Before we start, <laughs> this is, um, these are these are critics, famous writers, who are generally critical of Jane Austen. Mark Twain. I'm going to. You, you have to suffer for a minute. Mark Twain says, "I have an in right to criticize books, <laughs> but that's what I'm going to do. I have an in right to criticize books, and I do not accept when I hate them." It's the only justification for doing things that he hates, as if hatred is <laughs> a good reason for doing something. I often want to criticize Jane Austen, but her books madden me so that I can't conceal my frenzy from the reader. Therefore, I have to stop every time I begin. Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up, beat her over the skull with her own shin bone. How's that for being gracious? Wait, by the way, one of the points that I'm going to make in a minute when I get to Jane Austen and start looking at her book um, Jane, I'm going to ask this question of everybody. It's a serious question for me. When Jane Austen treats love, she doesn't take a romanticized love in the form of a couple the way the modern West does, America particularly, but focuses on a couple, their adventures, their struggles. Jane Austen takes us into a much more complicated, rich world of families, neighborhoods, travels, different settings. Um, Jane Austen's treatment of love is that the book is about Darcy and Elizabeth and we see almost nothing of them until Darcy comes and makes his proposal. They're in the background. Her focus is in all these other marriages and possible couples. All of them. So why does she do that? And I'm asking, I don't want an answer now, but I'm going to come back. Why does she do that? If you get into a modern American book, it'll be the romanticized love of a couple. The focus will be there. Families are a nuisance. You don't deal with families. 
Jane Austen can't deal with love and not bring families into neighborhoods, friends. Um, and Mark Twain, Huck and Jim on an adventure. 99% of American movies, an adventure. Modern America cannot deal with a love relationship between a man and a woman. I know that's an overstatement, but I hope you hear that I'm saying it because there's such truth to it. Go back to Twain. It's Huck and Jim. Emerson, I'm at a loss to understand why people hold Miss Austen's novels at so high a rate, which seems to me vulgar in tone, sterile in artistic invention, imprisoned in their wretched conventions of English society without genius, wit, or knowledge of the world. Never was life so pinched and narrow. All that interests in any character is this. Has he or she the money to marry with? Suicide's more respectable. That's Emerson. And by the way, what was his great work? Self-reliance. Self-reliance. And in that, remember, he became Unitarian. There's only one God. There's no Trinity. Um, we're all together. Nothing should divide us. Take the Trinity away and we can all get along. And he says that with, based on his belief in self-reliance. So the individual self is raised above everything. Another person in marriage, diminished. Is everybody following? Am I going too fast in this? Why do you like Miss Austen so very much? I'm puzzled on that point. What, in, what induced you to say that you would rather have written Pride and Prejudice or Tom Jones than any of the other Waverly novels? That's on Walter Scott, who wrote these, all these adventure stories. And Walter Scott, you want to underline this, he loved Jane Austen. <laughs> this guy is saying, how can you love that woman? That's one male, one male author supporting her. Hmm? I don't know who it was, it was of... Well, you can Google the line. Charlotte, Charlotte Bronte, whose Wuthering Heights I love. I, I think it's an extraordinary, extraordinary work. But Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre, right? I think that was her sister. Yeah. Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre, Emily wrote... Oh, Emily, right, right, right. I had... Oh, sh thanks, I'll correct that. It's Emily Bronte. I had not seen Pride and Prejudice until I read that sentence of yours, and then I got the book and studied it. What did I find? An accurate, um, daguerreotyped portrait of a commonplace face, a carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers, but no glance of the bright, vivid physiognomy, no open country, no fresh air, blue hill, no bonny beck. I should hardly like to live with her ladies and gentlemen in their elegant but confined houses. These observations will probably irritate you, but I shall run the risk. It was too stuffy, too confined for her. If you read Wuthering Heights, you know that it's filled with passion and breaking limits. and it, it's, it's Protestant at its core, um, um, and all the dark things are rooted in what's going on in the Protestant Catholic worlds. But, and you know that Jane Austen's not Catholic. She's um, Methodist, yeah. Okay, with those opening comments, I wanna read a couple of poems, and then I wanna to get to the book. Now, my reason for choosing Blake tonight um, is this. Um, you know, we've been reading um, John Donne, and we'll come back to Dunn next week. 
But one of the things that I wanted to impress on everybody was this. Something just wonderful happened in our group, I believe, because of the accident of putting Jane Austen here. We've read Moby Dick. We read Scarlet Letter, Brothers Karamazov. You know that all of those were being written um, during all the wars in Europe. The French Revolution was going on at the time that Jane Austen was writing. She talks about the militia in um, Meryton. She mentions nothing about war at all. Um, and the wars will continue across the century into Brothers Karamazov, if you know that. Um, Dostoevsky's writing Brothers shortly after all the wars that um, were taking place in every nation in Europe in the 19, or eight, sorry, 1840s. Remember, every nation, almost every nation in Europe is fighting over constitutional rights. They're trying to overthrow monarchies. England didn't give in to that. And the war between England and France had that at its basis. That war is going on here, okay? And it's interesting, I don't want to make, if you, I really want everybody to read my notes today because there's a section on the history, it's just a short paragraph, because I don't know if you take home the notes, but I put a lot of time into them usually. I really want you to read these notes so you get the overview that I'm appealing to right now. Um, um, where's I going? French Revolution is going on. Um, the French Revolution was about boundaries. The king couldn't overstep his boundaries and the common people shouldn't overstep theirs. Okay? But England was holding on to a monarchy and the authority that was believed belonged rightfully in a king. It was holding on to the divine rights and king. Christ the king is a little bit behind it somewhere. There's no connection in the book, except I want everybody to just be aware of this. What was at issue in some ways for Austin is the sense that all these wars were being taken place because people were willfully rebelling against um, these limits imposed on them, that they should have a freedom to do what they wanted to do. So in a sense, in her mind, it was like all of these destructive energies being released. Too willful, too independent, wanting too much. In, what's, in one sense, we can say that Pride and Prejudice is an affirmation of a settled view of life. She's looking back to a landed aristocracy that's fading, and she clearly regrets that. But she's also aware of these new energies that are being released, particularly in the major cities like London and Meryton. Meryton's a, a mercantile city. If you look at the characters, it's interesting how they suggest the French Revolution. Um, Lydia recognizes no boundaries. Wickham recognizes no boundaries. Um, Caroline, in some ways, doesn't. She flirts with them all the time. Um, Elizabeth doesn't, doesn't. I mean, she runs out in the rain, you know, and gets muddled, and she shocks everybody because it's so improper. Um, but she manages to hold on to principles, sound things. So her characters divide down, sense and sensibility, Mansfield Park, same thing. If you look, if you've read Mansfield Park, I know Mary has. If you read Mansfield Park, the Crawfords, Mary and Henry Crawford, are defined by exceeding limits, no boundaries, no limits. Self-willed, serving their own interests. So that um, the invitation to live for yourself, to be independent, which in some ways behind the 
French Revolution. That's a negative presentation of it, but I think for her it's fair. The tendency to live for yourself, to serve yourself, to use others to gain what you want was one of the principles at issue here. Everywhere in Austin, um, we're made aware of the importance of principles, being grounded, um, holding on to things, um, not using people, being careful of them with proprieties, decency, you know, the courtesies of regular life. So just hold that in the back of your mind. So while other people at her time are writing about wars and things like that that are going on, she's not. Okay. The um, William Blake's poetry. Blake looked back to Milton. We didn't do Milton in this class, but it's online, and it would, it would be a good um, thing to go back to the audios from St. Francis and listen to them because it would be good for you to know Milton's Paradise Lost. But here are a number of sec just passages from some of Blake's poems where he's celebrating um, Milton because Milton wanted to overthrow the government and kill the king. He supported regicide. He openly, publicly supported the killing, the execution of Charles. So he was beloved, and he's certainly beloved by Blake. So Blake is criticizing England because England has lost its way. Okay, it's still holding on to a monarchy instead of um, supporting people in their efforts to be free, to take responsibility for their own lives. That's the tension, the dichotomy going on here. This is from Jerusalem. England, awake, awake, awake. Jerusalem, thy sister calls. He's relating England, not to another country, to um, the biblical Jerusalem. Jerusalem, thy sister calls. Why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death and close her from thy ancient walls? Thy hills and valleys felt her feet gently upon their bosoms move. The gates behold sweet Zion's ways. Then was a time of joy and love. He looks back to a time when England was freer, not under the despotisms of, of modern kings, particularly after the Tudors. Because remember, Henry made himself the head of the church and put the state above the church, subjugated the, the, the church to the state. Um, I hope I get to Collins tonight because it'll, it'll underscore the point I'm making. From Milton, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the continents divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? England has given itself over to a mercantile world. People making money, using other people to get ahead. The whole industrial world is right off the borders. Everything the Dickens will criticize in his books. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariots of fire. I will not cease from mental flight, fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. That's how much this meant to him. If any of you have not seen the movie Chariots of Fire, it's, it's just an extraordinary movie. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, I'll take one more poem just to reinforce the point called London, last page. I wander through each chartered street. Chartered, it's, it's, it's under contract. Every bit of it is taken up 
like under contracts. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow. How do you charter a river? The river's turned into a, a means of commerce. What it does is expedite money. So even, even a river, which is the closest thing associated to nature, has been turned into an intellectual construct. Near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mind-forged manacles I hear. Where do all these constructs come from? Man's mind. They're products of his own intellect. The intellect has lost its ground. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier sighs, runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. Notice that what conducts the couple marriage is a hearse. So at the center of these faults is focuses on marriages that are going dying from within. So ironically, even though you know he's he's upholding the constitutional um, revolutions here in London, he's celebrating the central importance of marriage. Okay. Let me let me stop. Any I don't want to I don't want to take up too much time because I want to get to the book now. But any comments or questions or on where we're going and what's going on. Okay, this amazing woman, this amazing woman. I'm going to work off my notes for a minute here. We've read the passage by John Paul talking about the genius of women. Um, and my claim at this point is that Pride and Prejudice is a wonderful affirmation. And the church is um, failing um, in proportion um, to not taking women more seriously and women not taking them not taking their call, I'm not going to put this on men, women not taking their call seriously enough in however they serve the church. Remember, uh, and here, this is at the point of or at the center of it. Jane Austen's greatest concern, this is my most important claim, Jane Austen's greatest concern is love. Um, she's holding to what the medieval Catholic held, although at her time, all of England is turned away from a Catholic Middle Ages. They all look back, Wordsworth, Keats, all the Romantics, look back to that world with a strange sort of um, sense of wanting to recover something lost. All the Romantics did. Jane Austen is doing the same thing by taking love as her subject because love was the most important virtue. It was the virtue par excellence of the medieval world. The greatest virtue man could have was love. Not romantic love, not self-centered love, not self-justifying love. Christ love in a marriage. Love was the virtue par excellence and its fulfillment came in a marriage when one person gave himself or herself to another. So the very nature of love implies loving somebody and being loved. It's fulfilled in marriage. 
So for Jane Austen, you cannot separate the two. That was the point I made a while ago. You can't, it's not America where the emphasis on the individual, if an individual doesn't like his spouse, he can run away. She can run, you can, you know. Um, her, her whole canvas is populated um, by men and women who are attracted to each other, struggling with each other, and couples who are married. No accident. But one of the questions that I want to get to that I asked earlier has to do with this. Why does she do this? Why, does, why is her canvas so populated by all these couples and, um, and married couples? One of the great things that, here's going to be the claim, the corollary of what I just said, that her focus is love, the greatest virtue of man. Her, she does not define woman by a political structure. She's not a feminist. Her frames of reference are not political. Her frames of reference are natural. They're in the nature of a man and a woman. The nature of a man and a woman is to grow in love, to become better. Political structures can't do that. So her frames of reference are not political. They're natural. After the Protestant Reformation, all of nature's destroyed, it's ugly, it's depraved. Not for Jane Austen. She can look at all these couples because they, somewhere they're placed on this scale of loves according to their own nature. Luke, uh, some of the couples, one of the husbands um, wants to do nothing more than eat or play cards. <laughs> I mean, we see all the foibles of these wherever we see them. So she's showing us every degree of goodness perceptiveness of virtue of growing you know from those who just stagnate in their marriages and those who get better no here's my claim the corollary of my first one that love is their subject love and marriage no woman no man afterwards but now my focus is women no woman afterwards has done what she did with respect to love and marriage none the, the focus of every one of Shakespeare's comedies is love and marriage. If you've read Shakespeare enough, you know that. The only one that differs is Taming of the Shrew, and I believe that's essentially about marriage from the point of view of a good man. Feminists aren't going to see him that way. but um, Love is the focus, and marriage. If love is the focus, marriage has to be the end, because love was meant to be shared. We were meant to love and be loved. That's the nature of the Trinity. So marriage was absolutely at the heart of it. Show me a writer after Jane Austen who, who approaches the world in the same way. Conrad, Henry James, um, Dickens, George Eliot. You can go on and on. And um, you, you get closer to it with Faulkner, but Faulkner's, we'll see that it's doing something a little bit different. It doesn't happen. She's not there. The whole Catholic way of standing in the world is gone. We've talked about this. Set any one of Jane Austen's books against Hemingway. We've looked at him. Dostoevsky, Falk, or I mean um, Melville, Hawthorne. Hot in love for or marriage in Hawthorne? Darkened with sin. So everybody following me that a, a fundamental break, the joy is possible in a marriage. The condition of it is, the condition of joy is that you must not do something. You must not run away. You must not elope. You must not play with stuff. When you make a vow, it matters. Um, 
And the condition of it, the ultimate end, is joy, happiness. Show me a writer. Henry James, Conrad, the old following. So it's interesting for me to put it in this perspective after we've read these people, because now we can see something that was lost. With Jane Austen, it stops. She's carrying forward everything from Shakespeare. She, she, to me, she was honed on Shakespeare. After that, that place of love and marriage is not central to the lives of men and women. That's how important it is. Now, here's my question. And I'm, just ask, I'm asking this half facetiously. We're looking at her in the past, and I'm trying to bring to light something that's come to mean more for me in this last reading of her because of all that I'm trying to put together. Jane Austen's view of marriage is secular. It's humanist. It's not Catholic. There's nothing religious. She doesn't deal with evil. She, there are glimpses of real evil in Mansfield Park. and par, I'm partly sorry we're not going to do that, but we're not. I, I, I'm concerned about other things here. Um, it stops. She doesn't deal with the sacramental life of marriage. That stopped with the Middle Ages. It's still present in some ways in Shakespeare. By Jane Austen's time, love and marriage have become um, um, center to a temporal order, a natural order. These are natural virtues she's talking about. Her, her canvas is not spiritual like it is for Dostoevsky. Is everybody following? We're in a secular, nat a world defined purely in naturalistic terms. And I'm going to say right now, that's part of her beauty. That's it's why I, now, instead of putting her down and saying, we're not going to do Jane Austen, I'd, I'd turn that around and say, the very reason for doing her is that she shows us what the natural order is capable of what, before the Protestant world takes over and says, depraved, bad. Something's going on, you divorce. But there's something sacred in love and a marriage. And Jane Austen has limited it to the naturalistic world natural virtues. The amazing thing is that she can show the foolishness of all these marriages, the real, but she can also show the wonderful joy that's possible for a man and a woman once they've been chastised and become better than they were before. The condition of every one of her novels is being chastised. To learning each of the feminine heroines to see herself as she is so that she can go on to become what she is in her own pride. Because pride always blinds everybody, men and feminine, but her focus is on women. So um, the amazing thing is she's wonderful because she makes clear. Now, can we redeem the past by taking something that's only natural and talking about it in terms of grace? I'm on such dangerous ground here. I hope everybody knows where I'm going and I don't want to... My wife has given me that look. It's on the base of that look I'm going to keep going here. Can you redeem what? Remember in Dante, we talked about this because in God's kingdom, there's no past or future. We've talked about that numerous times. In heaven, everything is. God knows the past as if it still is or the, you know, the future. He is. There's nothing that, there's no past or future in heaven. So remember when we were in Dante in the Paradiso and um, Dante was looking at the past at Gregory. 
I think, and, and some of the Trajan in the Eye of the Eagle. Trajan was a pagan. And Dante wanted to know how he was saved. And he said Gregory went back and did things so that grace isn't confined to time boundaries the way we confine our world to our time boundaries. But God isn't confined to those. So can grace work backwards on time? Dante makes clear that you can. I've been saying all along that one of the qualities of the epic is that it carries the past forward and redeems it as it goes. There's a redemptive act going on in every work of literature. The epic took it as one of its themes. Can we bring something redemptive to Jane Austen when her subject is only natural, not religious, by anything we do to it? I'm going to leave that there because it's, it's too touchy. But Anyway, that's... I just want to put all of that stuff out so that when you're thinking about Jane Austen, you can acknowledge her limits, you know, but also see how great um, she is in what she's doing. What she's doing is amazing. No other writer after her can do what she's done. And in my mind, it says more about Twain, certainly Twain and uh, Emerson, for them to speak about her the way they do. It says more about them than it does about her because she is extraordinary in what she does. Every man growing up in this country should be required to, to read at least Pride and Prejudice and, uh, and actually every woman. I mean, I think women need My this. My daughter made her fiance uh, watch Pride and, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Well, let, let's see how tough they get when they made because the requirement should be you read that. Watching a movie doesn't doesn't come close. Movies don't. The miniseries, I mean, the lines are taken directly out of the. Of course, you miss the whole narrative description, but it's the story. Is, yeah. It's so lazy Americans. I have no. You can't do justice to. It's films are a visual medium. Novels are a language medium. And one of my claims that I made earlier is so much of the light of her intelligence comes through in her narrative. It, I, the only word that I can use is light. She's so brilliant. She, bring, she, she makes everything so clear. And one of the interesting things about this, I'm going to give away something here. We're watching Elizabeth come to conclusions based on her perceptions. And she is amazingly perceptive. She keeps seeing things, and we keep seeing things through her. So, anyway, just those are my opening comments. Any any comments or what is he You're talking about Hook Finn? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where in hers, it's a small world, and they're more confined, and they're working everything out there. It's a totally different focus. Yeah, completely different. Yeah, completely different. Completely different way of standing in the world. And Jane Austen would say, you don't need to go outside your own family for adventure. <laughs> I think all of us know that. I can't believe any of us who've raised kids know that we don't have to go farther than our own walls to. Anyway, here, let's. Um, I want to touch on the important things of 
of her work. One of the most important themes in Jane Austen is this relationship between nature and art. She's not feminist. She is not feminist. One of the fundamental principles governing good artists in the Renaissance, that governed Shakespeare's work, Jane Austen grew out of that, is the relationship of art to nature. What do I mean by that? In one of her chapters, she describes Collins, and she says, he's not a bright man. He's not a, you know, he's, he, he's not a particularly good man. He was, he, by nature, and he wasn't helped by his education. So one of the questions that she's wrestling with, and it's what I meant by I said, her frames of reference are nature, not an ideology, not possibilities, it's what's real is the nature of a person, because all of us are gifted differently. Some people, Elizabeth is very bright, and she's well-read. Um, Lydia, it's hard to say what her gifts would have been because she's done nothing to develop them. But it, Jane Austen believed that people were gifted differently. Collins was not a particularly gifted man. Jane Austen, or Elizabeth was. So was Darcy. And both of them improved on their condition by reading. They helped grow, made them more perceptive. So she's got this natural frame of wrestling that all of us are given different talents, but we can do something differently with them. What determines the virtue of a person is what he does with those gifts. Now take it seriously. How does Wickham deal with his own natural gifts? He uses them to take advantage of people. Huh? He uses them to take advantage. Yeah. Does he, I mean, he, he's so gifted, but everything he does gets spoiled, just ruined. And everything he does with his gifts is, I mean, exactly as Lexi said, I mean, he does it to use other people to get what he wants. Um, he was um, or, headed towards orders. Um, he wasn't fit for them. He went into the um, to law. And so he's, he's it's like a son saying, I'm going to do this. I want to become a lawyer. So as a father, you support him, maybe reluctantly, because you know your son's not you shouldn't be giving him money. Excuse me, anyway. And he wastes all the money he's given for law, and he comes back and he says, I want to go back into orders. I mean, that's what manipulators do. It's what people with serious addictions do. They use people. Is everybody following? She's very clear. So when she's judging people, it's not artificially. It's not according to some political ideal. She's looking at people as they are, in their natural abilities and what they do with them. Um, serious theme. Um, the theme of traveling. It may seem small, but it's not. What we see is for Jane, from Shakespeare, by the way, she got this. If, you, if you've read Shakespeare enough, you'll know. If anybody travels in Shakespeare, it usually represents a change in character. Some ch inward change takes place. If you're at sea, you go someplace or you visit another country. Same here, right? Um, whenever one of the characters goes to another place, it affects them. Changes take place. So the traveling in her is not just, you know, measured in miles. She knows that spiritual changes um, take place. That moving from one place to another symbolizes something. So when you, so when you go from Longbourn to Netherfield. The, Bing, or the Bennets are going from one kind of culture to another. 
when, when the sisters, Lydia and Kitty, go from Longbourn to Meryton, it's a mercantile place. The soldiers are there. The young girls are flirting constantly. What's the father do? I mean, he's going, to be, he's going to come up for a severe criticism in this book. What's the father doing about it? All he does is laugh at his kids. He makes fun of them. So indirectly, he's allowing his kids to come under the influence of a mercantile military town. London's another town like that. It's a mercantile town. But the gardeners are there. I mean, they're well established. In London, um, people who have made their profession by their own efforts. One's become a lawyer. So they haven't received their money f because they look back to a landed estate. They've had to earn it. So they've become virtuous. But the point is, from when um, Elizabeth um, goes to um, Hunsford and Rosings and stays with Le um, Lady Catherine, she enters a different world, completely different world from Longburn. Okay? Charlotte is going to be the mistress of Hunsford, and she's going to come under Lady Catherine's influence because they're neighbors. Are you all following? So Jane Austen is very... Mansfield Park takes that as its subject. Mans, the, subject the, the focus of Mansfield Park is a place. It's not, a, it's not sense and sensibility. It's not pride and prejudice. It's, man, it's a place because there are four settings in that novel, four different settings, and every one of them is... Um, a locus of values. People are shaped by them. Come, no, Crawfords come out of a London world. Self-interested, self-seeking, no boundaries, do what I want, use people. So when people travel in Jane Austen, um, we're supposed to understand that something's happening, even if she doesn't make it clear in language, okay? So um, I'm sorry, Bob's not here. If you took a trip to Europe, you know, or if you took, um, if you went um, to another state to, vi to, vi to visit relatives or related people, something happens during those times. We encounter something different from ourselves, our kids, parents, friends, and that encounter with the other has an effect. Our world enlarges. Okay. So the settings are important. I've got them, if you turn to page two, you'll see Longburn, Netherfield Park, Derbyshire, Pemberley. We wait on, Pemberley's gonna be a stunning, stunning place when we get there. Meryton, Rosing Parks, Hunford, London, all of those, okay? Um, take a look at page three for a second, okay? I've set it up this way, it's, it's too contrived, but, but it's a way of showing that she's aware of something. And she's, a, she's a, extraordinary. She's extraordinary. When you read Pride and Prejudice, you immediately find in the first volume that everything starts when the Bingleys come to Longford, right? It's that opening chapter. When, when a wealthy man comes in her neighborhood, she's the property of some, some woman or another. Um, we're introduced to the balls. We're introduced to Netherfield, where the Bingleys are. And we go to Meryton, where the balls are. The first ball takes place. So what happens when the Bingleys enter? Newcomers enter? Things change. Immediately, um, Mrs. Bennett goes nuts. You know that. I, I'm, she can be a witch at times. I mean, truly. She, just, um, she, she wants her daughters to be married. She looks down on uh, Mrs. Lucas because Charlotte gets married to Collins, um, even though 
Elizabeth had a chance to marry him. And the mother says, if you refuse him, I won't talk to you again. And the father says, if you marry him, I won't talk to you again. <laughs> um, but the Bingleys enter town and, and Longbourn changes. When they go to Netherfield, they enter a different world. When they go to Meryton, they enter a different world. Now what happens, you know, is that Jane is invited to Bingley's for dinner because Charles is, Charles Bingley is really interested in her. Charles, in fact, it's clear that he's falling in love with her and she's falling in love. So there's a whole section from chapters um, 6 or 7 to roughly chapter 13, 12, 13. That whole section is devoted to Jane's going there, getting sick and having to stay, and then Elizabeth going there to um, stay with her sister while she's sick. So both sisters get out of that longboard world and they're in another world and things happen there. Is everybody following? Then they get a letter from Collins who's arriving and from chapters 13 to what is it, 23 to the end of, the end of volume 1, um, we're in a Collins world. And indirectly um, in his world we're brought into contact with Lady Catherine and her world. And volume one ends with um, the announcement that um, Collins and Charlotte will get married. They do get married and she travels to Hunsford to become mistress there. And um, the possibility of a marriage with Darcy goes down the tube. So in volume one, Elizabeth because of everything she learns from Wickham, she, um, she does nothing but hate Darcy. Um, but volume one ends um, with Elizabeth taking some interest in, Dar or in Wickham that may lead to a marriage. Is everybody clear in the movement? So Bingley enters the world, marriages are talked about, um, um, Charles and Jane seem interested in each other. They have all these balls. They have dinners at each other's houses. Jane is invited to Netherfield. She goes there, gets sick, stays. Elizabeth comes to visit her. There's a whole section in which Jane and Elizabeth encounter the Bingleys, and Jane Austen's focus is on them and the Bingleys, and Darcy's there. So the whole section showing them. Collins comes, and you know that he proposes to Elizabeth. She refuses. Um, he turns to Charlotte, she accepts. So from 13 to the end of volume one, we're concerned with Collins. A marriage has taken place and the prospects for another one don't look good. Now let me stop. I'm gonna, I wanna go to certain passages now to get into the book. But before I do, I wanna ask this question because to me it's a major, major question for all of you. Are you all following what she's doing? She's a master it, and if you watch her, if, if you pay attention, you'll see that so much of what she does in the um, Bingley section and the Collins section is set up for things later. Elizabeth's getting all this information. She's confirmed that, that Darcy is a bad guy. Um, and because we see things through her eyes, we tend to see him that way. Um, but so much of what goes on is a setup for things, that's gonna, things that are gonna happen later. She's just masterful. But here, the point that I want to make is, Bingley comes to town, suddenly everybody's unsettled. Elizabeth goes to Netherfield, Jane goes, they're there for a while, we enter the Bingley world. Collins comes and we enter that world. 
And let me make this one point before I turn it back over to you guys. Um, every, you can't miss what a fool Collins is. He's an idiot. Okay. But I want everybody to see this because I, I think you could miss it. You can't miss what an idiot is. I mean, he's just, he's so ingratiating and um, fawning on, you know, and um, when, he, when he proposes marriage to uh, Elizabeth, there's a lot of him like Darcy. I mean, he thinks that Elizabeth should feel favored or flattered that he wants to propose to her. He think that um, she would be doing herself a service if she did. He's shocked to learn that she refused him because he has such a high estimation of himself. But right, that's where I'm going. Well, two things. I want to mention two things about Collins, just to be sure these things are right. One of them is in the um, entailment, which is an evil, and Jane Austen sees it that way. In Mansfield Park, it's primogenitor, that the oldest son gets the fortune, and the younger, younger son has to make his way. So both of those principles are a little bit related in Pride and Prejudice. Entailment means the property goes to the oldest male, so it's like primogenitor. So the, the Bennets know, there's a couple of things to see here. The Bennets know they're going to lose their home. The unfairness of that, they're going to be out. So there's a, a couple of things to say here. One is they're going to lose their home. That's a privilege given to men. Um, it's going to affect all of them. Um, Does it say anything to you that um, the Bennets had five daughters in the context of entailment? To me, it's like, go ahead, Anne. It's just laughable. They're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> what? They're doomed. They're what? Doomed. Unless one of the daughters can do well, they're But does everybody see, I mean, my picture of, I don't know that, does everybody see <coughs> Bennett had to take his wife to bed again and again and again, hoping for a son. Five times, I mean, it's just laughable, the lust in that. It's, it's hit. Nobody said anything about it. But I hope everybody sees that. They've got five daughters, so they must have been trying really hard. This guy wanted a son and couldn't stop until he reaches a point where he can't have... I just think it's, 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 it's such a subtle humor, but it's there. That's one thing to hold on to. But entailment is an evil, and the consequences of it are awful. One of us can make a man go to bed with his wife all the time, hoping for a son. God. Bennett doesn't have to experience the loss of the house. It's his family. Yeah, yeah, good, Doc. Yeah, yeah, good. The second thing I want to say about Bennett that, you, that can be lost, and it needs to be seen. You remember under Henry that Henry um, couldn't get a divorce from the church, um, and remember, the Catholic Church allows annulments. The, the idea that it won't allow annulment is just silly. It does. But there are conditions on it because they hold people to their vows. Henry couldn't get his divorce, so he, he made himself the head of the church. He said, head of the church concerning matters of dogma. So it wasn't just a political move. It was sacramental. The, the, the church was subjugated, put beneath the authority of the church. The parody of that result is Collins. Who's, who does Collins look to for anything? It's a joke. Yeah, I mean, are you all following? Can anything be more of a parody 
He can't do anything without her permission. Nothing. His wealth, his place, his position. She'll probably tell him what to do with his homilies. I hope everybody's seen. The, Jane Austen's not going into religious matters here, but the implications of this are, the parody of it is sort of sickening. But that will die when um, Mr. Bennett, I mean, that will, that will change when Mr. Bennett dies. No, it won't. No? No. You think Collins? No, I don't. Collins will, Collins will never come out from underneath Lady Catherine's par, um, um, patronage. He fawns on her. He, she gives him status. Even if he has the Bennett's house. I mean, he, it's his way of flattering himself by mentioning her all the time because she's so wealthy. But I, you all see the point. This is like a, a, this is the end result of something that happened centuries earlier. And we've seen the parody of it now. And it's just a reminder that her focus is in a secular world, but there are implications to this everywhere. Okay? So, is anybody, everybody okay? It's, it's, sad, it's laughable, but underneath the humor, there are dark things in Jane Austen's world. Here, I want to put my question back to you. Why does Jane Austen do what I've been describing? She starts out with Bingley, coming, the Bingley's coming. Elizabeth goes to the Bingley home, or Jane does. She gets sick, or she's, oh God. She's, God. Well, I'm, I'm gonna ask two questions. I'm gonna ask two questions, and, and wait a minute before you answer them. Wait a minute before you answer. The opening lines, you, you should, they should be burned into your memories. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered as the rightful property of some one or the other of their daughters. Um, the Bingleys come to town. There are these balls. Jane and Charles become um, attracted to each other. He invites Jane, she, she's, don't forget, she's following her mother's advice because her mother knows that it's raining. Her mother, she knows it's raining and she believes her daughter will get sick and be invited to stay and that's exactly what happened. To the detriment of her daughter's health, she says, take a horse. She goes, she ends up getting sick, she stays. Elizabeth comes to visit, to give succor to her sister. So there's that whole scene in the Bingleys. Collins writes and he comes. And then we've got a whole other section on Collins. Everything is moving towards marriages. The opening lines, um, Jane being invited the Bingleys, Collins coming. Um, assuming that he'll have a good reception because everybody knows they're in debt to him. <clears throat> so why does Jane Austen do this? What, what's happening? Because, go back to my question. Her theme is love. Absolutely, and marriage. The fulfillment of love comes in marriage. When a man and a woman unite, okay? Why does Jane Austen present this? Because we're, we're not focused on Darcy. I mean, we are in some ways when Elizabeth goes to the Bingleys and <coughs> she and Carolyn are teasing with Darcy all the time. But why does Jane Austen do this? What, did, what is she accomplishing in the first volume by doing things that way? on a lot of the mechanics of what uh, 
brings two people together, and especially from the parents' um, viewpoint, the mother's, you know, from Mr. and Mrs. Bennett's viewpoint, finding their daughters uh, someone who will support them well. Uh, now, now, Collins is a different, he has his own uh, purposes about finding a wife, which is to please Lady Catherine. Uh, he's been told that he should have a wife. Perhaps he thinks he should have one just because, but his, his motives are not to find uh, a, a person <coughs> full, not to become you know, a, a man and wife in the traditional sense, but just to fill a, a place. Yeah, to do check it. Box. Very good. Thank you. Do it. Check a box. Check a box. <laughs> what else? What's she doing with all these couples? Because the focus is on these complex, rich neighborhoods, families. There are these scenes involving Darcy. We can't get. By the way, I gave you that page on um, narrative points of view. I'll go over to when we meet next time. But are all of you are all of you aware of the difference between omniscient narrator and third person limited? What's an omniscient narrator? Go go ahead, Anne. Knows everything that's going on. Yeah, he can get inside of a character and describe what's going on. Dickens is often omniscient. He'll go into somebody's heart and describe it, and he'll describe scenes externally. Joyce changed all that. And I don't want to get into that, but but omniscient means you see everything. External events, what's going on internally, a, a, a narrator can describe them. Jane Austen chose to do third person limited. If you, I want you to look, if you please read my notes and look at that. There's one set of notes that I think are particularly good for you. But Third person limited means we get everything from one person's limited point of view. What's the advantage of doing that for Jane Austen? There's a real advantage. In fact, it's true of all, all of her novels, and there's a reason. What's the reason? Why does she do that? By the way, it's faithful to life because most of us see things that way. You know, we see things from our own point of view. What's the advantage of doing that for Austin? What can she do with that? Well, our character can change, can see something and then realize that it was wrong, or that she was wrong. Or yep. I hope everybody sees that. We enter into this world largely through Elizabeth's eyes. So we tend to be limited by what she thinks and feels. And the beauty of that is Elizabeth is so perceptive. Jane, I mean, she, she's amazing. She is absolutely amazing. She, Elizabeth is extremely perceptive. So we tend to trust her because she sees so well. She sees. Um, now, where does she go with that? What does she do with that? And can you elaborate on that at all? You mean in terms of being more limited or, 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 or her perception? Let me put it differently. How much do we trust Elizabeth's point of view by the time we get to the end of the first volume? Would you, wouldn't you agree? She is. And, sorry? She's principled, she turns college. Right. 
Can you all hear Doc? Mm -hmm. Did everybody hear? She's principled, she's perceptive, she's intelligent. She turned, she's principled enough to turn Collins down. Her mother, not very principled. Um, that means we go along with Elizabeth. We enter her world through her perceptions. And it's interesting to think about this. She's very observant, very acutely observant. She bases her judgments on what she observes. So we tend to trust her judgments because she is so observant. She sees things as they are. And, we're, and it's interesting, it's, but there's giveaways, you know, because she's almost determined not to, to like Darcy. So she's given clues, Bingley tells her, be careful. She's given, she's given a couple of clues in the first volume. Be careful what you're doing. Bing, Carolyn warns her off. Does she heed them? She does not. She trusts her own judgment more than she does when she's gotten several hints something might be wrong. But she doesn't follow them. Do we know that? Jane Austen, she's too masterful. We're, we see things so well, and Elizabeth is such a good mind that we tend to go along with her. Um, now go back. Why does Austen give us this great canvas, this panoply of marriages and couples to show us? Because in every one of them, the Lucases, the Williams, Sir William and his wife, the Phillips, every one of them is satirized. Mr. Lucas cares nothing, wants to do nothing but eat or play cards or um, um, Charlotte's mother um, and Mrs. Bennet are envious of each other. Mrs. Bennet does all she can to put uh, Mrs. Um, Lucas down because um, Collins proposed to her and she thinks her daughter's going to get married before Charlotte. And then Charlotte gets married and you know she's deflated. Um, why does she satirize all these people? There's not a person she presents in the first half of the novel that is not satirized. None. Hmm? Hmm? Jane. Even Jane. There's, there's a, where's, well, it's, I mean, it's, it, go ahead. For Jane, it's, it's almost like you're, you're too good. You know, I think she satirizes everyone because everybody has faults and everybody has foibles. And even Jane, it's like you're too good. You always think of that person being good. You always take their side. Yes, yes. You don't acknowledge that there could be evil. Elizabeth, Elizabeth says that several times. There's one point, too, to just give this, to make this concrete, where... Um, Elizabeth wants to talk with Jane about what she's learning about Wickham because she's getting different messages and um, Jane's response to Carolyn is she would never lie. She would never cover up. And she's wrong. Carolyn, Carolyn does it subtly. But in that one scene we see even Jane can make a mistake. As good as she is. But I, I think you're absolutely right. The, one of the nice things about that is that she's so good that she's too innocent. In fact, it's going to be to her disadvantage because every Charlotte is going to, or no, Darcy is going to say in his letter, Jane didn't give any indication that she was, so he completely, he didn't deliberately misread her. He was trying to take what he saw in her and, you know, Jane was really good. Um, it's not, 
Austin is so careful. She's so charitable because Jane is such a good person. She really is a good person. She doesn't play the, the games of the flirtation and stuff, and that's what everybody expects every woman to do to get a husband, and she wasn't playing that game. Yeah. Why is Jane Austen satirizing all these people? We can't appreciate a really good match unless she shows us some of the other qualities. Right. Maybe, maybe because she wants to show us ourselves in these people. <laughs> I think that's always there. I mean, she was a great artist. So she had to know that in reflecting the complexity that goes on in all these couples and marriages, that she's, she's being faithful to what humans do. That's what's really... Mark Twain doesn't come close. No, I mean, none of the writers that I mentioned come close. She's so faithful. Here, here's anybody else. I, mean, I, I think this is what's behind it for her. It's just makes me in awe of her. Um, everybody in this book um, shows a failing in their judgments that they make. Some people are inattentive, they don't bother, the Lucases say, all he cares about is card games, they get together. Carolyn is too swept up in flirting with Darcy, you know, how perceptive is she? None of these people are very perceptive. The gardeners are good. They really are good. And they're, they're self-made. They've worked to get where they are. All of these characters are, are, are either excel or lacking in perceptiveness and being observant of their world. Elizabeth exceeds them all. Wouldn't you agree? She's the most observant, the most perceptive. How, on what do we base our judgments? On our powers of perception. Clearly, some of these people, Collins has made it clear, he, he wants a marriage of convenience, so does Charlotte. They don't have to, Charlotte knows she's not going to be a winner for everybody, so she's content to, to get the best out of what she can. So Jane Austen is showing us a hierarchy of perceptiveness of people's natural abilities or not. And some people are more perceptive than others. J Elizabeth is clearly the most perceptive. So she's showing us this relationship between perceptiveness and conclusions, judgments. And what she's showing is marriage is based on judgments. Charlotte and Collins don't go as far in their observations or perceptiveness as Elizabeth or Jane or the gardeners. I can't not underline this enough. She satirized these people to show a failing in their powers of judgment. They're not very perceptive. They don't care to look. Elizabeth is by far the most perceptive, and she's the most in whose judgment we trust because she's so good. Why is this important in this book? To put it more directly, why is it important for a marriage? If, if, if this book is about marriage, what's going on in this relationship between being very perceptive in the judgments that you make based on your perceptions, your observations? Wow. Have I not, have I not asked that clearly enough? That's what's true. 
Hmm? Isn't that true? The, the, most in th the most important thing in a marriage is your judgment. How well does Elizabeth judge Wickham, for goodness sake? Or how much do any of them, Darcy and Elizabeth, misjudge each other completely? Both of them have got to change. Mar marriages are based on a judgment. How many, how many of these people come off as making good judgments in their marriage? And how many of them even care? Some of them just want marriages of convenience. But that's not the case with Elizabeth. What, what Jane Austen is showing us is what can be the very best for a couple. And it's going to be based on how observant you are and the judgments that you come to. What we're seeing in the first volume is, is since everything comes through Elizabeth's point of view, and we see things that way, we tend to go along with her judgments. We're going to learn directly her judgments couldn't have been more wrong. She's going to turn down Darcy. Who's she going to marry at the end? Darcy. But both of them are going to change. She's showing us how important the, the intellect is, how much it can go bad, and the foolish things that two people do on the basis of their minds, how important it is to make good judgments. Why? Because your marriage will depend on it. What's the most important thing in life to Shakespeare or Austin in a comic world? Marriages. So would you say that Yeah, and, and what's the fault in, that the novel makes clear in Bingley's case, just to take Bingley, because there's, remember that chapter when Elizabeth goes to Bingley's to look after her sister, and Darcy, we see Darcy and Bingley put together? What happens in that exchange between them? Do you remember what happened, what they said about each other? Darcy and Bingley? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When Elizabeth goes to be... Yes. And, and I think that Elizabeth doesn't respect that entirely. Yeah. Um, and both he and Jane are sort of naive. Go, go make the con, stay with your, between Bingley and Darcy. You just described Bingley. Follow through in that exchange between the two men. Darcy's different how. Uh, well, see, that was an exchange between Elizabeth and Bingley, where they were examining his character. I'm thinking about the exchange between the one that you're the one that you're describing is between Darcy and Bingley. Well, here, go go to the page. Yep. Right. Do you have the lines or? No, I do not. Can I, anybody just add? Let, we don't have to go here because we about out of time. Darcy says you pri exactly as Lexi. Darcy said you pride yourself on being sort of informal and casual and being able to go on and and Darcy and they do it when they're talking about writing that Darcy takes yeah, pains with writing. writing I have the writing here yeah that he takes more pains with things he studies he's more concerned he deliberate he deliberates more on on um, judgments so he's far more severe um, I mean, we, his pride is exposed in the first ball because he makes it clear he's not going to be—he's not going to dance with a woman who's not looked up to by other men. Can you be more insulting to a woman than? I mean, so he's—he's he's very studious. He takes his principles absolutely seriously.
and it's one of the reasons Elizabeth doesn't like him. Later, she's going to love him because those are the things that make him good. He's going to change, he's going to be humbled by her refusal, but is everybody following what Austin's doing with this matter of judgment and how people are satirized because of the way they stand in the world? And why that's important. The first, if you look at the squares that I've set up, the first one is about Elizabeth Jane going to Bingley's. They're attracted to each other. Collins coming. They're, both of them have at their root marriages. But we've entered two different worlds. And all the time our own perceptions are enlarging because we're watching Jane Austen satirize all these people. And in every one of them we see a better or worse degree of perceptiveness of powers of observation and um, good or bad judgments. But the height, the standard for Austin is a really good marriage. Where you watch two people who are really gifted have to overcome their pride about those gifts in order to become the people they really are. In order to love the way they could be capable of loving. And they can't do that without going through these ordeals of learning to see how wrong they were in the judgments they made. So she's laying, she's laying out a world here and showing how important these are for me. Or put it differently, you know, in the modern world you get married and get divorced. You don't like something, you know. How many people in our modern world enter marriage thinking that it's a state in which we can learn to grow together? We can you know, we can get better. Sometimes that's a real battle. I mean, it can be a real, real battle. Um, we're in a different world from Austin's. Put Jane Austen next to Hemingway. Um, clean, well-lighted face, abortion. Um, short, happy life of Macomber, she kills him. Um, clean, well-lighted place, a suicide. You know, it's just a different world. It's a very, very, it's a darker world. But here we're in a world, in, it's, it's looking back to a Catholic past. It's gone. It's gone. But she's showing us the best of the natural world that, that, can, that can be for a man and a woman. That's what's amazing about what she's done. So in, in volume two, which we'll pick up next time, um, Elizabeth ends up going to Hunsford to visit with, here it is again, I'll put the boxes. There's going to be a whole section with Elizabeth at Hudsford where she can visit with Charlotte. What's she going to encounter in that world? Because in that world she's going to be constantly invited to Lady Catherine. So she comes to Hunsford to be with Charlotte and ends up at Rosings all the time. What are we learning there? What is she learning? What is Jane Austen showing us about Lady Catherine's world? What kind of a woman is she? Look at, look at her daughter, which says a lot. Her daughter is... It's like she's spiritually beaten up. She's thin, amazing. She's just like inwardly. It shows what a mother can do, an overbearing mother. We're entering Lady Catherine's world in, um, and we'll come back to uh, London. What is Jane Austen doing in each one of those worlds? What is Elizabeth learning? What are we learning about people? What are we learning about ourselves? What are we learning about how important it is to be careful of the judgments we make because they matter in our lives?
She's incredible. She really is extraordinary. Any comments or this first time in a year I beat Bob. I've got five minutes to go. Talking about judgment. Go. A lot, yeah. And even Caroline, I mean, I'd, whatever took him to London, Darcy's not around, but um, it's hard to believe that Caroline didn't have some influence because clearly he was attracted to Jane. Um, he just doesn't have the strength of character. He's a, he's a really good man. He's a really good... I mean, I hope everybody's seen. Jane Austen's standards are pretty tough. She's taking... She's, she's showing the very best in a woman. She's showing things that are not so attractive. But what she's showing... Is the whole ray, a, a hierarchy of, you know, of natural gifts and what people do with them and how good they can be if they learn and... You know, and it seems to me one of the values of reading her, you can't read this without learning because she satirizes everything. We, we learn to see how silly people can be, you know, and how good they can be, really good. And, and the sufferings that are um, involved with people who are gifted. The people who don't care don't suffer. From what? The people who are more aware suffer. Suffering's a part of their growth. They're given these gifts um, and they don't come to them without suffering from what they learn for these gifts. She's pretty amazing. Anyway, when you read volume two or go back if you've already finished it, go back and take a look at what happens to Elizabeth at, um, at Hunsford in Rosings. And then what happens at the end of, you know that Darcy's going to propose. So when you, we're going to look at that really closely next time. Collins makes a proposal. Line that up with Darcy's proposal. And then the fact that he gives Elizabeth a letter afterwards, that's going to be central to volume two. What are we to take away from that? What do we learn about Elizabeth? What does she learn about herself? What does Darcy learn? What do we learn in that world that she enters? Because remember, we keep being introduced to these worlds. She travels and symbolically, they're all meant to be seen as occasions for change. They enter these worlds and it's like they can, they can become more of who they are by nature, who they've been given to be. Melody. Give me a question, because I know you've got one, and I'm not good at getting back. Do you have a comment or a question here? Uh, I guess my comment would be, um, I've had a hard time enjoying this book because I find everyone so silly. <laughs> <laughs> that they can fall in love in an evening. And what? They can fall in love in one evening. Right. And to get yeah, right. So you really empathize with Elizabeth. She's the only one with common sense. And then she ends up not understanding. Right. So right. Austin's trying to show us our own pride and prejudice. Right. 
by showing we don't understand what's happening in other people's yeah. lives. Yeah. So yeah. It's been very, uh, it's been very good, but uh, it took me a while to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. For good reasons. I mean, you're, I mean, you were, you should, because everybody in the first. You know, half of the book is satirized. It's it's wonderful satire. She's showing us. She's showing us our. She reminds me a little bit of Chaucer. She's showing our foibles, but in a humorous. I think a, she, the way she understates things is to me is amazing. But but I agree with you. I'll tell you. I'm going to be, get personal for and I. This is going to blow away everything I've been saying here. There are times when I get worried. Um, I don't know how to put this. Well, maybe I shouldn't. I'm so aware, I mean, it's along your lines, I'm so aware of how foolish people are that it's, it's, you can get easily caught up in being superior to people. Part of the beauty for me, and I'm saying that really, I just think Jane, I just think she's amazing. I'm, I'm trying to imagine somebody marrying her. Um, she's so bright, she's so bright. But the saving thing for me along those lines is when we get to the middle of the book, she's going to see things about herself that's going to show she's the most foolish of all because she sees everybody so clearly. So the whole book is going to take that element of satire that runs through the first volume and turn it on its head. The, the, she caught, by the way, the, the novel in the beginning was called First Impressions because she has all these, and then the second half of the novel are all these meditations that she, she sees her failings and she stands in the world a completely different woman. She's, she's utterly changed so it gives a real power to the change that takes place in her. To, we go through seeing things the way we do you know with Elizabeth and admiring her and then I mean to make your point you know that, that we so identify with her. We see things the way she does so when when things turn and she says I've I've always prided myself in my judgments and I never knew myself until now. I mean, I think every reader should come to that point and say, how much am I like that? I mean, how much is that my, what do I think I really know when there may be so many things about that thing that I don't know very much about at all? Sounds to me like you had a lot of Jane in you. Yeah, no. No? And gullible. And gullible. <laughs> Here, one more thing before we go. Doug, can you describe your your response to Wickham's first encounter with Elizabeth? What put you on guard about that? Did go ahead, do you did did nobody find it telling And he said, I, I shouldn't say all these things. If somebody gives you a really deep, sad story on first, 
occasion? Should, I mean, really, truthfully, should you believe, take seriously everything he says when he's confiding really deep things? So you, you've not had time to grow in it. That is, you've not had time to form a trust in a person. This guy lays bare his soul. And in the modern world, to be American means you do that all the time. Um, and, and you feel pity for a guy right away or, you know, a girl. Or, but how much do you not know about that person who does that? I, I mean, I myself, this is a skeptical part of me, I would be a little bit on guard with somebody who was that open on first meeting. Um, and yet she believes him. So, you know, there's, Jane Austen's so perceptive. She's so... Because he was gifted in the way that he presented He was himself. handsome. That's and, and personable, not just goody. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and he was uh, kind of reinforcing an image of Darcy that she had already formed. Uh, and then she yeah, she wants to believe him because it confirms her own judgment. <laughs> oh, speak for yourself. I'm not tempted that way at all. Oh, God. Confirm us, yes. Let's stop. Second volume. Oh, here. Next week we meet. It's the fourth. It's the fourth of December. No. No. The fifth. 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 We'll meet next week, because I, I want to really follow this up to get everybody through this. But then we won't meet for a month. We, we will meet the second week of January. That's to clear the way for Christmas and let everybody recover from Christmas. So we'll meet the second week of January. Okay, I'll write you a letter. But I'm, next week we meet. I'm just going to say next week is the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. And in the evening, they are having yes, the big procession. Yes, they're having a big procession. But I think it's over at the gym. <coughs> the, 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 the procession. The procession. So, the procession. Should, 